Hello, my name is Rory O'Connor and I am President of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. I'm delighted to welcome you to our new podcast series called Reach In, Reach Out. We're hoping to encourage safe conversations around suicide and suicide prevention, and we aim to bring together the different aspects of the work that we do, providing a global perspective, but crucially also sharing stories of hope. A fundamental part of our work is engaging with people with lived and living experience of suicide, either through their own personal experiences of suicidality or through loss and grief. This will be a central strand running through the entire podcast series. Given the sensitive nature of the subject matter, it is vital that we all prioritize our well-being. So please practice self-care. I hope that you find the podcast of interest and we really look forward to hearing what you have to think. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the first of YASP's new podcast. And in the podcast, we're going to be great guests and really to talk about some of the important and hot topics in suicide prevention and suicide research as well, more broadly. So I'm absolutely delighted today to welcome two fantastic guests to our first podcast. So we've got uh, Mashika Oeda, who's Associate Professor at the Faculty of Political Science and Economics at Waseda University. And we've also got Jane Perkis, and Jane's uh, the Director of the Centre for Mental Health at the University of Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. So welcome, both of you, to our podcast. Thanks, Rory. Great, thanks for having us. Great, looking forward to this. Pretty informal, we're going to have this really informal conversation. And, and hopefully, what, we're, so what I'm hoping to do with the podcast is to really tackle these hot topics, but bring together people with a whole range of different experiences. We've gone with two um, researchers today, but as part of the podcast, we'll, we'll be involved in people with lived experience, policymakers, people from across the globe and from all stages of their career, those involved in suicide research and prevention. So with that sort of note then, can I start off with, maybe start with Jane first then. Jane, do you want to tell us a bit about, obviously I know you Jane for over many, many years, but some people who obviously don't know who you are, can you tell us a bit about your background and what brought you into the field of suicide prevention? Sure. So my background's originally in psychology. So I trained as a clinical psychologist and I worked for about a nanosecond as a clinical psychologist. And I just decided that it wasn't really for me. But, you know, psychology is great training in lots of things. And one of the things that's really good training is research. So I fairly quickly kind of hopped into a research career. And not very far into my career, I had the opportunity to do an epidemiology master's and I absolutely loved it. I, I liked the fact that it was all about the population rather than so, being so much about the individual, which is, I guess, maybe more what psychology is about. So I thought, this is great. I'll carve out a career for myself in epidemiology. But I also realised that it would serve me well to retain a content area that I knew something about. So having had good training in mental health through psychology, which I also loved, I worked in psychiatric epidemiology from the word go. And I had the opportunity, I was involved in a project that was on the epidemiology of suicide and self-harm, absolutely loved it, found it really interesting and felt like I could maybe make a contribution. And I've never looked back. I've, I've stayed in the field ever since. 
So when I say it like that, it's uh, and later I did a PhD in psychiatric epidemiology in, in suicide prevention. But when I say it like that, it sounds like I had a plan. But I have to say, really, it was kind of line of least resistance. A few good opportunities came along. And I was fortunate that quite early on, I worked out what I was really interested in and maybe what I was less interested in. But so, so then, in some ways, a linear path. Well, well it sounds linear when I say yeah. it quickly like that. It was a bit of a wending path, really. Along a winding road, so to speak, as somebody once said. But in terms of the epidemiology stuff, though, so do you think, given that you did both training in epidemiology and in psychology, so what what do you think is the benefits? I know obviously it's it's obviously more public health oriented, but what do you think is the the benefits of epidemiology in that context for suicide prevention? I mean, if you think about it. I think it's about... It's about the fact that it's about populations. Mm-hmm. So through epidemiology, you can learn a lot about patterns of, well, of health behaviours really, but in this case, you can learn a lot about patterns of suicide and suicidal behaviour. Obviously, there's a place for a whole lot of other disciplines to be contributing to knowledge in suicide prevention as well, and that's one of the things I really love about working in the field of suicide prevention. It's so multidisciplinary. And when Michiko talks in a minute, she's going to introduce herself as having a particularly interesting professional background that she's brought to suicide prevention. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, well, well that's a lovely segue, Jane, and thanks for, for that background. So then uh, lovely then in terms of thinking about Michiko's, your own background, then, can you tell us a bit about what, what brought you into suicide prevention? And as Jane says, I know you're not a psychologist and you're not an epidemiologist by training, are you? I know, yes, yes. I probably had the most unique career, probably trajectory among all the suicide-related researchers. I was trained as a political scientist, so I have a PhD in political science. And then everybody asked me, well, why are you studying suicide prevention as a political scientist? Well, there are a couple of reasons, but the, my, my main personal reason was for so. I did my PhD in the U.S. and I also was working in the U.S. But I went back to Japan. I came back to Japan quite often during summer breaks and stuff. But every time I come back to Tokyo, the train stops almost every day. And I started to wonder why that's the case. And that that's train stops because somebody jumps on the train. That's almost every day in Tokyo. So that was like a peak of the seaside, kind of the, yeah, the seaside count. And then, then I started to wonder, why is it Japanese government doesn't do anything to stop? So that's how I started looking up, you know, what's the effectiveness of the suicide prevention policy. It turns out not many people studied it because that, that was not the probably the, you know, the topic that they're interested in. So my course and I started to looking up at the data and I did some analysis using this kind of method. Econometrics is something that we use, but it's the same method that I think a lot of disease prevention epidemiologists use. It's the same statistical method that I can use. So I started digging up more, you know, suicide-related research, and that's how I got in. The same as Jane, I didn't look back. I Sometimes I try, still try to pretend, pretend I'm a political scientist, but I'm not. I'm totally into suicide prevention. And that's especially important because we with the kind of data analysis skills that we have, we can make a difference in somebody's life. And I think that's really tremendously important. So that's why I don't look back and I keep doing this. Is that related? Is yeah. No, that, that is fascinating. But I wonder, though, you must be bringing, you, obviously you mentioned the statistical methods, but more broadly in terms of the theoretical 
underpinnings in, in political science. Yes. I assume you're bringing, you bring that to the field as well. Yes, 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 that too, I, I think. So we use the same method, but I think the way we look at the, you know, things and then how we look at, you know, combine the society and the individuals, that's a very different, probably the social science very approach. So I tend to have the social economic background in terms of everything. So even if I think about suicide, I always think what are the, you know, social economic factors that can potentially explain the rise in suicide, for example. So that's, that's probably a unique aspect that I bring into the suicide prevention research. Yeah, because I'm just thinking, and Jane, I wonder, both of us reflect on the field, but in terms of political science, historically, I mean, I'm trying to think who are, or have we had many political scientists moving into Probably the field? But I think, yeah, but in a sociologist, definitely yeah. Yeah. crime is a good example. So I think that there are a lot of things that social scientists can do, but I think somehow it's kind of forgotten and they kind of neglect it. You know, there's topic. been loads of contributions by, obviously, social scientists like Stephen Stack, for example, always. Yeah. Sociologist. But I'm thinking political science more specifically, though. I, I'm just, I mean, are there other, others, contemporaries that you can think of, Michiko or Jane? No. No. <laughs> No, so I can't. I don't think so. I don't think so. But however, no, we're, we're all the luckier to have you. Yeah. <laughs> no, we are absolutely. But I, well, but I think if you think the political science is connected to public policy, then yeah. that's kind of yeah. I think the public policy definitely related to suicide prevention. Mm. So I think policy effectiveness and then so that kind of thing. Yeah. No. No, it's interesting because I think Jane made the point already. I think one of the real strengths of the field of suicide prevention is that multidisciplinarity and we're so fortunate to have mm. all these different disciplines trying to focus on this big challenge that we're all here today really to talk about so of that note then maybe kind of move the conversation on a bit and so both of you have been at the forefront of the global efforts to track and understand the impact of COVID-19 on suicide rates and, and mental health more generally. So maybe, Jane, we'll kick off with you first, Jane. So do you want to tell us a bit about the fascinating, whatever, genuinely global work that you've been doing on that? Sure, and it, but it's absolutely not just me. It's it's lots of people. It's more than 100 people. So, and in fact, the first person I would like to give credit to is David Gunnell, who yeah. brought together this fantastic international collaboration really early on in the piece when there was concern not just among suicide prevention experts but also among the general public that there might be an increase in suicide that would would run alongside the pandemic and there were good reasons to think that that might happen because in the past we've seen major events that have resulted in economic hardship being associated with suicide rates and also population mental health is obviously also associated with suicide rates so so there were good reasons to be concerned but we wanted to sort of really get a handle on what was happening. So David led the charge, getting us all together. We collected information about what was going on already. So David and Anne John have been leading this living systematic review throughout the whole of the pandemic with others as well. Anne John from Swansea in Wales, who I work with all the time. And we love the fact that we're both awake at the same time. She's a night owl and I'm a, whatever the opposite of that is, an early morning person. A lark. So we often have cups of tea together. So, so we, not, we also decided... You're not, you're not even joking when you say that, Jen. I know you're... I'm not, not even joking when I say that. No, I'm not. I'm <laughs> <laughs> quite serious. So we decided that what it would be really good to do is see if we could work out what was happening internationally. 
So we gathered as far as we could real-time data on suicide from around the world, so from some whole countries and from some areas within countries. And in the end, we had data from 21 countries and we looked at what was going on in the first four months of the pandemic. And almost universally, but unfortunately not quite universally, Michiko, we found that there was no evidence that there were greater than expected number of suicides in any of the places we looked at in that initial analysis. As time's gone by, we've updated the analysis and there's some evidence in some places that there has been a greater than expected number of suicides. But I would stress that those places are in the absolute minority. So in far more places, there's been no change in suicide numbers or in fact a decrease in some places. So we gathered all this information and we were able to report on that, which was I think quite a good sort of myth-busting exercise because there was all this concern. The general public were convinced that there was this exponential rise in suicides. I don't know. I know that that you two, but presumably others have also seen lots of social media activity about just how many suicides were occurring. There was there was a lot of information here in Victoria where we had a big long lockdown at the time. It was the longest lockdown in the world. And there was all sorts of stuff happening on social media about how how bad that was for the suicide rate. And, you know, obviously there were some people who were really struggling, but it just wasn't the case that there was a, a massive increase in suicides here. Yeah, but so Jane, just so in the first you've done two iterations of the of the analysis yeah. and you know. So first of all, you said you had the two, 21 countries, which are primarily high-income countries, and then you've that was then expanded, isn't that right? So many did you expand? Yes, that's right. So, so more recently we've got data from 33 countries, same story, so some whole countries, some areas within countries. So in the end we had 59 separate data sets, but it's easier to say 33 countries, I think. You're right, Rory, when you say that we had greater representation from high-income countries, and the second time around we did too. The second time around, as I said, we... We did see evidence in a still a relatively small number of places that there was some evidence of greater than expected numbers of suicides for the total population. And this time we were also able to look at different age and sex groups as well. But I think that the, the key message is that the places where there was an increase are still in the minority. Mm-hmm. So we, we're interested, and this is a, a great political science question probably, Michiko, we're interested to know why in the places where there has been some evidence of inflated numbers, why that has been the case. We did try to investigate that, but it was tricky. It was There was too much variability between, between the countries and we could only look at information for a restricted number of countries and we're using information on things like the stringency of lockdowns, which may have varied quite a lot from place to place within a country. So. It's tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, you've once again, Jen, you should be doing my job because you've set up nicely <laughs> for bringing in Michiko again on the work that you've been, the really fascinating work you've been doing in Japan. So, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so unfortunately, Japan one of the, was one of the outliers in, in the, the study. So, what we had was 
So at, at the very beginning of the pandemic, we had a little bit of a decline, but I knew that it's going to go back, go up, up to the, or even increase the expected level. And in, in fact, that's something that we had. From the July of 2020, we had a significant increase, especially among females. And that's something that I have never seen. So if something happens, it's usually the male, middle-aged men who are more likely to die by suicide, but it was different this time. It was all female and then relatively young ones. So that was an increase in the summer of 2020. And in the fall of 2020, we had a huge increase. That's like a 50% increase of the female suicide again. And then in the end, we have about 1,000 more female suicides. So in 2019, it was about 6,000 female suicide deaths. But at the end of 2020, it was 7,000. And I thought that's going to be the end because we had a couple of cases of celebrity suicide. So maybe that was partly explains the increase. But unfortunately, that was not the case. And then even in 2021, we had the same you know, increase among female suicides. But the uh, interesting thing is, we, this is something, again, I have never seen, but there was an increase among females, but no increase whatsoever among men. So yeah, that's a, def definitely a very different trend compared to what we had in the past. This is something that I have never seen. So I'm still struggling to understand why that's the case. And this is something that we'd like to you know, explore in the future. But one possibility is, you know, as Jane suggested, there's some kind of political, how the government responded to the crisis may you know, related to the increase. And then also, you know, how the society structures, for example, in Japan, this huge gender inequality, uh, that may explain some of the increase among female suicide, but we still don't know. There are a lot of things to be explored. But Michiko, see, so thinking just on the, on the Japanese data, I just wonder, so before the pandemic, was there mm -hmm. any evidence of female suicides increasing? Because I know certainly in the UK, no, no, actually, so, so the, both male and the female suicide has been declining so rapidly over the last 10 years or so before the pandemic. It was 35% decrease. So that's a huge decrease. It's just going, going down, down, down. And then it went back up only among females. But for males, it seems like that declining trend kept going so it's just declining still so it's just as if the female only the female suicides reversed its trend so that that's a, again that's kind of unusual but then i want because i know certainly because we've been tracking the mental health and well-being of mm -hmm. of the uk population and and although although yes as jane has pointed out in, in the uk in many countries suicide rates were stable or decreased since the pandemic kicked in, but if you look at the indicators of mental health and distress, they have all gone up. And it doesn't matter if you look right. at symptoms of depression, symptoms of anxiety, suicidal thoughts, loneliness, entrapment, and so on. But those are much more marked in women and young people. So, and obviously, people yeah. with pre existing mental health problems and those from more socially disadvantaged backgrounds. So, I'm wondering though, in the context of Japan, so the impact of the pandemic, you mentioned already the inequalities, the gender inequality. But is it that the, the people, the groups of people who are most affected in Japan were those working in, well, in, in caring professions and hospitality? So is there any sense that they're more, more likely to be women than men? And that, is that part of the explanation? Yeah, that's interesting. So from the beginning of the pandemic, April 2020, so I have been doing a monthly survey of mental health conditions, in, but mainly a depression and anxiety symptoms and loneliness. What I found is, again, it's the 
young individuals who got much, much worse in terms of depression, anxiety symptoms, but the elderly population are doing perfectly fine. They haven't changed anything. And so that's, that's one good, great thing about the elderly population. But another fact that we found out is the female and the male don't differ at all in terms of the mental health. Not much, a little bit, but not not much compared to the suicide rates. So I don't think that explains everything, but at the same time, so the younger individuals and then also those who are kind of financially unstable, these yeah. are the ones who had a very, very kind of worse, much worse mental health. And then also suicide ideation and the loneliness is also a big issue in Japan. And it's, it's about 40% mm-hmm. of Japanese populations considered to be lonely and then again the young individuals are feeling more much more lonely so 40 40 percent of the japanese for, population is considered lonely yes that's a high number that's a, so it really, of course it really depends on how where you set yeah. the threshold and how you define it but it's consistently about 40 percent because it's how you you know measure loneliness so mm-hmm. that's very very high and that is interesting. Jane, just come back to you, along with a number of us, obviously, as part of the international COVID-19 collaboration, suicide prevention collaboration, research and prevention collaboration that Mark, your good friend and our good friend Mark Senior, led on a piece that you were involved in as well, trying to explain, that's like what we, Chico and I are try, chatting about now, that mismatch between uh-huh. increases in distress versus not seeing an increase in suicide. So do you want to maybe say a bit about that? paper which was published in Archives of Suicide Research. Yeah, so so we and others have thought about the mismatch because it's quite stark, I guess, and, and people, lay people go, well, why would that be? So, you know, there are some plausible reasons, I guess, and some of them might be testable. One is obviously that there's just not a simple relationship between mental disorders and suicide. So obviously not everyone who dies by suicide has a mental health problem. Not everyone who has a mental health problem dies by suicide, clearly. So there's not, so the relationship is complex for a start. There may also be, I mentioned, economic consequences of the pandemic and the fact that they may be related to suicides perhaps down the track. Similarly, there might be longer lag times for suicide than there are for suicide-related outcomes than there are for mental health-related outcomes in the, in the circumstances of a public health emergency. So one of the things I would say, in spite of the fact that we've been heartened by the findings that we've had in general from the two studies we've done, we really consciously telling people not to take their eyes off the ball mm. because it's quite possible that there are still consequences to come that we haven't seen yet. So there is this thing about lag times. There's also... But Jane, sorry, can you just on there for a second, sorry. So going back to the recession in 2007, 2008, which is probably the closest sort of thing we've been looking at, what was the lag? Was, there, was it a two or three, a minimum of two or three year lag, really, between the recession hitting and then the increase in suicides? Am I right? Yeah, so there's a lag between... There's a lag between an economic downturn and suicide, but there is also a lag between the pandemic and the economic downturn. Mm -hmm. So in many places, we haven't yet probably seen the full economic consequences of the pandemic, never mind sequelae beyond that kind of thing. So there's those two factors. There's also many countries, particularly perhaps high-income countries, 
responded to this observed increase in, in mental health problems by, you know, providing funding to boost mental health services and crisis lines, which may have in turn mitigated the risk of suicide. So potentially that would be another way it could have played out. There was also definitely evidence that communities were rallying around those who were struggling and some of them would have been people with with maybe emerging mental health problems or a likelihood of developing mental health problems. And that whole feeling of the community coming together may have been helpful there. And finally, I think that although undoubtedly a lot of people had a really horrible time during the last two years particularly, there were some who had a great time. And some of those were people who found they could spend more time with their families, they could work more flexibly, they could just lead calmer lives. And all of those things may have had mental health benefits for some people. So there's, there were, I guess that what I'm trying to say is there are plausible reasons for why there might be that mismatch that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think, I think it's far too early to tell. Another challenge that we'll think moving forward is it'll be difficult to disentangle the effects of COVID-19 now with the effects of, in many countries of the world, obviously there's real challenges in terms of cost of living, the energy crisis, the war in Ukraine, yeah. all of these coming together now, I think really it will be difficult to disentangle. But look, looking ahead then, Machigo, coming back to yourself, what do you think that you're sort of thinking about the next steps? What should governments be doing or what should all of us be doing then to try and mitigate or continue to mitigate the risk? Now, obviously in your country, You've seen the increase, sadly, but what else should we be doing? Well, that's a good question. There are lots of things, but I think the COVID, one thing that COVID taught us is something that, you know, the loneliness on mental health issues, it's something that can be experienced by everyone. It's not just only a tiny fraction of people who may suffer from depression. Everybody can suffer from depression. So that kind of awareness was a good thing. And I think if people have more access to mental health care, and there's less stigma because of this. I think that's a really good thing, and it's the government can help. And I think one of the great things that Japanese government at least is doing is to just try to tackle the issue of loneliness mm-hmm. because that's a neglected big, neglected big topic that can also be a factor behind suicide. So I think, you know, recognizing the issue of mental health and the loneliness and to try to do something to you know, the mitigate the problems. And then also the crisis line that Jane mentioned, that's definitely need, at least in Japan. And if people still, I think in many Asian countries, still people don't want to talk about mental health. People don't want to seek out for help, even if they're in crisis because of, well, it could be stigma, but it, it could be a lot of factors, but it's not available in many Asian countries. So I think if that can change, I think that can be a good, you know, it, it can lead to a good outcome. Yeah, no, it's, it's- Obviously, interestingly, you mentioned loneliness there a few times because in the UK, certainly where we have met, May is the Mental Health Awareness Month. And and actually the theme this year is loneliness, trying to tackle loneliness. And certainly in, in the UK, also in the different parts of the United Kingdom, we have you now ministers within government who's part of their... Yeah, culture. we do have that too. Loneliness. We copied you. And then, yes, yes, we yeah. tried to. <laughs> yes, Jane, do you, do, you that, do you use that focus on loneliness in Australia? Yeah, yeah, there is. There's, there are, there's definitely an increased recognition that it's a big problem in its own right. You know, previously people might have talked about loneliness as kind of a byproduct of something else and not worried about it, assuming that if they solve the problem of, you know, the problem they were talking about, then 
loneliness would go away. But now there's definitely an emphasis on loneliness. We've got researchers here whose specialty area is loneliness. So it's, yeah, it's definitely getting more recognition. And it is a, it is a big problem. It's having, having people around you, having good social support is, is very protective. And the flip of that, being lonely, is, it can be really harmful. Oh, well, I mean, the thing was, in some respects, it's amazing it's taken so long for it to be mm. prioritised. Because you yeah. get the research evidence, it's not even just in terms of suicide or mental health, but no. all those work, the work, great work in the, in the US showing, well, that means it's awful. It's early mortality from physical health problems is predicted from loneliness. I mean, so yeah, no, it's great to see that being embedded in, in, well, in governments, different governments. Um, but I wonder if that's mostly embedded in high-income country governments, whereas in, in low-middle-income countries, I, I don't know if that is a focus, obviously, because mm. there are other challenges. But then thinking in, Jane, going back, the same question I asked Machiko is, well, what do you see as our, what should we be doing to really continue to mitigate the risk of COVID-19? I think we should be thinking it, about it from multiple angles. So I think we need to, and it's it's that kind of classic public health view of suicide prevention, thinking about universal selective and indicated intervention. So we need to be doing stuff that's universal, but we also need to make sure that we're at the other end of the spectrum, helping people who are, are at that kind of indicated end where they're presenting to services or, or not presenting to services, but they're in a state of crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me take it just on you on the point Jane made about presenting to services. Did you did I understand correctly? You're saying there still is a an issue about help seeking for mental health problems and stigma in Japan. Definitely, definitely. So it has been much, much better. So the Japanese government did a lot of campaigns and awareness campaigns. So I think compared to say ten years ago, it's much, much open to talk about your depression or suicidal ideation. But still, it's not something that we commonly talk about. So, and then people don't seek out for help. That's something that we know for sure. And we are trying to do, well, the studies try to solicit it, you know, the help seeking behavior, but that's quite difficult. So I think that's something that we can do. You know, I think I'll do a little bit of data science kind of work as well. So I think we, we have tons of data. We can do the online intervention. So I think there are lots of things that we can do as a you know, researcher, you know, that is, you know, solicit help seeking behavior with the, you know, help of technology, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just one last question, Mashika, on the Japan data. So is there anything specific that the government is doing to tackle this rise in female suicides? So we, they are fully aware. So that even as of fall of 2020, they are fully aware that there's a sharp rise among females. So it's big, just because we have a very good rapid system of data release. So we know it right away. So they did a lot of things. They tried to, you know, give out cash assistance to, to those financially struggling. And then also the increased crisis nine service and that. But unfortunately, I don't think it was enough. And then sometimes there's a service, you know, the government try to, you know, help, you know, those in need, but the, the system is difficult to use and it was not utilized too much by those in need and et cetera. So they're trying to do something, but I don't think it was quite effective quite yet. At least judging from the numbers, the, con- you know, continuous increase among females, I don't think it was effective. So the so bottom line is we still don't know and we are trying to tackle the issue, but we, 
you know, the, both the government and the researchers like me still try to understand what okay. causing things is. Oh, great, great. Okay, so just I've got a couple of last questions, then we'll sort of tie things together. Moving away from the COVID work, um, I'm always interested to see what people think are have been the sort of really key developments. Like, what are the big successes in the way in the field in recent years? Although there will never be obviously ultimate. Sadly, we're st- there's no success is the wrong way to think about it because we're trying to prevent all deaths, of course. But maybe I'll go to Jane first and say, Jane, what do you see? You're you've been working in the field for. Um, I think about the same length of time as me. And <laughs> <laughs> so what do you see and you're reflecting over the last number of years of, as a sort of key? I, so I would say two things that are maybe not so much about specific interventions or whatever, but I'd say two things have really changed in the field in the time that I've been in it. The first one is the much greater focus on gathering evidence about what works and what doesn't work. When I started in the field... It was all about, well, particularly in the epidemiology of suicide, it was all about rates of suicide, risk factors, cutting the risk factors every which way, but not getting to that next stage of working out what you might do about them. So, which, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that people were doing absolutely nothing, but there's a much greater groundswell of activity of thinking through different things that might or might not work in suicide prevention and testing them properly. So that's the first thing. And the second thing I'd say is, And this is a more recent development. When I started working in suicide prevention, there was absolutely no no attention paid to people with lived experience, except sort of in the sense that they were were patients or whatever. But now I think suicide prevention has really led the way in really bringing the lived experience perspective to the whole industry, for want of a better word, of suicide prevention. Very little happens these days without there being really good, at least input, but often proper co-design from people with lived experience, which is fantastic. Yeah, and no, EASC has done a great job with that. Um, yeah, no, I, it I, now I, has its has a lived. It's not a SIG, is it? It's a li- whole lived experience group, which is great. And the comp, the EASC conference on the Gold Coast that we've just come away from, there was a fantastic, really big lived experience presence. It was really good. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think that. Involvement, essential involvement as key partners, people who have the experience, both those bereaved by suicide as well as those who have been affected by suicide in the context of being suicidal or attempted suicide themselves or carers. I think yeah. it's absolutely fantastic, really, really important development. But it's, I think it's so patchy, though. I think it's, I think in Australia it does, does really well. And Australia's, we've been lucky. We've got a fantastic yeah. organisation called Roses in the Ocean and, and yeah. they've just done an amazing job. Yeah. Yeah, can I just say one more thing, Rory, because yeah, it's yeah, just sure. occurred to me while you've been speaking. I think those two things are not unrelated, the two things I've observed. So I think one of the reasons that we're much better at looking at what might work and what not, might not work in suicide prevention is because we have that input from people with lived experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's a fair, fair comment. No, I think the UK, I think we're pretty good at it as well. And mm. the United States, I think, is moving that direction as well. It, like um, so having key involvement. What's it like in, in Japan, Michiko, in terms of involvement of lived experience? Unfortunately, not not much. But I think that's something that we definitely miss. And I'm, as I attended the conference last week at the, in Australia, that's something that I noticed very, that's a very yeah. significant difference. So I think 
we can learn from you know many other countries and i think and that's probably because of this again the stigma and the shame associated with suicide it's again it's really difficult to talk about you know your experience and so that that's something that we should change as a society yeah no no that's Thanks for that. So then, bringing that question directly to you then, Machiko, what do you see as the sort of key development, really good development in recent years in the field? I think that so, so I'm coming from a different field. So like I do a lot of interdisciplinary research and I collaborate with lots of different people in different fields, psychologists and neuroscientists, data scientists. I learn a lot from them. And then suicide is a kind of an interesting area in the sense that we have quite a good data, actually. We talk all talk about this death data, but that's not the only data source that we have to analyze suicidal behavior. Of course, we can do sub- individual surveys, and we can use social media data these days. And mm-hmm. we can learn so much from you know how what they're going through by looking at tweets for example so that's something that we and then a lot of computer scientists are interested in predicting the suicidal behavior based on you know what they say on twitter and that's something that i do as well so i think there are lots and lots of opportunities to collaborate with researchers in other fields and we can definitely learn from them and we can definitely expand you know, into a new de- new kind of horizon of new kind of research. So I think that's really exciting. And we should definitely do more collaborative interdisciplinary research, I think, in the future. Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely. I suppose when I think about the involvement of these new data sources, like you mentioned social media, it also gives rise to these whole set of other ethical questions we have, never yes, mind yes. methodological questions. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think as a field, we're still we're still trying to find a way of how do we do that yeah. in a way which protects the rights of those who are vulnerable. So there's mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, but one last question. I mean, one last question for each of you, just to sort of um, finish things. So I'll go back to Jane again first. So Jane, we've just talked about new developments. So what do you see then as the flips and way the flip side is? What do you see as the biggest challenge in the field? So Matilda, I'm giving you the heads up. It's coming to you next. But Jane, do you want to kick off that? I think the biggest challenge is that suicide is so complex. You know, if it was if it was something that had a single cause, we probably would have nutted that out by now. We might have even worked out how to address that cause. But it is so complex, and it's it's complex for the individual. Never mind for the population. So there are multiple causes. It's tragic and it's complicated and I think that's the biggest challenge. Yeah, no, that's a, yeah I agree. That's a, embracing that complexity and and I think that so some things I get frustrated when you see the way suicide is covered, for example, in the media, I think that, that complexity is often reduced mm. down to a single risk factor and that's just it's unhelpful. It's unhelpful for everybody. It's unhelpful for those who are vulnerable and it's unhelpful for those who are bereaved or those working with those who are suicidal. Mm. Yeah, so same question then to you, Machigo. So what do you see as the biggest challenge in the field? No, definitely. I was going to also say, we're going to say something about the media as well. So, that, that, so the suicide prevention in the past was slightly easier. Well, we tried to, you know, do the media guidelines and try to you know, ask newspapers to not to do sensational reporting. That was it. But that was not the case. That's not the case anymore. People can't send any messages related to suicide on social media. They can speculate anything. And then also the young, vulnerable individuals talk about their suicide ideation on social media. 
And in Japan, there are lots of incidents in which the, you know, suicide individuals try to get together on social media and, uh, you know, make a pact basically. Or mm-hmm. there's even a murder case. And so social media can be good and bad. So I think, I think that, that kind of challenge for vulnerable individuals and how to, you know, make use of social media, but at the same time, not to have, do any harm. On them, I think that's that's something that we still don't know, and it's something that we should try to address and try to understand. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think it's these things are always about finding the balance. You're trying to raise awareness around suicide and its prevention, but not creating harm. And um, so, then one just to bring it to a sort of close. I'm really grateful for your time. Is there are there any key topics or things you thought? Oh, I wish we had a, Rory had asked me that or. Have you any, any questions or comments or things you think oh, it would be good to add that into the podcast? You don't have to have that. You can be no. I know. Look, Rory, I think you've done an excellent job. Yes, yes, yes. But- so I mean, there's all sorts of things we could talk about, but we've been here for years. So I think, yeah, I think exactly. it's probably good to wind it up. <laughs> but then... But so the, the theme for World Suicide Prevention Day and was last year and this year is creating hope through action. And I think with both the, the new developments and challenges, and you both highlighted, really fit lovely with that, is that because they're all about us trying to create that hope through doing doing things. And I think the one, the key one, I think, which came through really well there was that involvement, that central involvement with people with lived experience. And I think that's something we just have to grow and grow, but also get it, get, have it in such a way that it is embraced globally in all countries of the world and as alongside obviously tackling decriminalization and all the other issues that we're also trying to do yeah. as an organization okay well thank you so much for your time and that was really interesting and really looking forward to see what you both do next in terms of the the COVID-19 work specifically and I know you're also involved in lots of others so thanks a million for your time today thank you and thank you Rory you very much.